Do one thing every day that scares you. Welcome to AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. I'm Ramia Amuthan, and I'm here with Jacob Shymansky. Hello. Hello. The quote that we picked for this week, you picked it again, Jacob. I feel like I need to pick a quote next time. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, where'd you find it? I looked at some of the most popular quotes having to do with fear, and this one was by far one of the most popular ones. Mm. Eleanor Roosevelt being the uh, first lady from uh, 1933 to 1945. She famously revolutionized the position of first lady where it wasn't just a ceremonial thing. It was like an actual diplomatic position that to this day still means a lot. And that position has a lot of responsibilities, even though people want to admit it or not. But Eleanor Roosevelt was a very revered figure. Even history looks on her quite favorably but this was a quote that's always attributed to her and i think it speaks to getting out of your comfort zone and doing that with the goal of personal development and we do like to be afraid and scare ourselves and put ourselves in uncomfortable situations but why why do we like to go on roller coasters why do we like to watch scary movies Mm. why do we like to read spooky books and that's what we're talking about today. Yes, we are. Also, I think of this concept of the flow that a lot more people are talking about. I can't remember who coined it. I'll get back to you on that. But the flow of, you know, just a little bit outside your comfort zone. So you're learning something new, trying something new, stepping outside of what you're used to, what makes you comfortable. But also there's enough comfort there that you can continue doing it without feeling like I quit. This is too challenging. So, um, you know, video gaming and things like that come to mind where you get to the space where you can challenge yourself just enough to be scared so that's cool mm, it's a middle ground not too hard but not too mm, difficult not exactly too easy exactly shout out to eleanor roosevelt though um we are going to be speaking to our friends karen mckay and Teresa power from the center for equitable library access that's where we'll talk about spooky books also later on we have sarah hillis joining us for know your narrator so two of these monthly segments back to back on this episode it's going to be fun one of our favorite narrators personally favorite narrators is going to get brought up today julia whalen and um, speaking of SELA, the Center for Equitable Library Access, let's quickly run down the featured titles because these three titles are what are up there right now. And uh, they get switched up once in a while, but here are, are the ones that are up there. We have 19 Steps by Millie Bobby Brown. This is a family stories title. We have Doppelganger by Naomi Klein, and this is um, dealing with social issues. And the last one is Reykjavik, a crime story by Ragnar Johnson. And this is a crime story that one of our guest, uh, guests is looking forward to checking out. So maybe I'll bring that up as well. But let's get into it. We have Karen McKay and Teresa Power from the Center for Equitable Library Access joining us. Teresa is the content and access librarian. And, uh... Uh, sorry, Karen McKay is the manager. <laughs> Did I say that right? Communications manager at SELA. I'm sorry, I haven't memorized your titles yet. But it's so nice to have you back on. It's been a while, friends. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. Okay, we want to talk spooky books with you. Um, 
is it for you, Teresa, a go-to just because it's the time of year? Yeah, definitely. I think that there's something in a spooky story that evokes like fall time and, you know, cloudy weather and cold weather. Um, so, yeah, definitely these are the times of months for me to to go into a spooky book or, you know, a thriller edge of the seat title. And Karen, for you, any specific reason? I mean, I think, okay, yeah, we're leading up to Halloween, and that's a big reason to just talk spooky books to begin with. But are there other appeals that we kind of maybe unconsciously uh, love to pick up spooky books for? Um, so I'm not usually a spooky fan, but there's something about this time of year where things are getting Who colder, you're coming inside. I know, it's Teresa's <laughs> idea. Um, uh, there's something about, you know, c- coming inside and being sort of uh, cocooned and, um, and, you know, maybe not out doing so much out in the world that I, I sort of think it sort of lends itself to to getting thrills and chills in in other ways. So it's not just Halloween, but also sort of the weather and the coming inside. And I think it's all about the weather. It's that first first hit of cold air on you, and you just realize that winter's coming. And winter is kind of spooky in its own way because uh, it's harder to survive in the winter. Exactly. <laughs> but it's interesting, right? So I will pick up a, a a horror book around this time of year, or as it gets even colder, and think like, "Oh yeah, this is totally the vibe. Let's do it." And then I terrify myself. And it's the same thing with TV shows and movies. But I love it so much. There's a psychology of a horror being like, "Yeah, let's completely embrace ourselves uh, in this genre." But also, why do we do this to ourselves? I think there's probably a few reasons. I was actually doing a little bit of reading about this sort of phenomenon before we we came on. And um, there's lots of theories about, you know, we we need to sort of challenge ourselves. We need to feel that fear and then feel the power to be able to control whatever it is that's causing us that fear. And mm-hmm. that's a an easier thing to do in obviously in, in a situation with books or with movies than in real life. Um, there's lots of research about why we should read spooky fairy tales to kids. And it's sort of all about empowering them to face fears and move on and that sort of thing. So I think that carries over for a lot of folks in their sort of their adult years that they, they want to have that thrill, but there's, you know, there's um, interesting differences in demographics as to who really likes spooky stuff and who does not and what stage of life you might like spooky stories. Oh, that's Um, interesting. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. And I'm not a huge fan of horror and of, of um, spooky books. They, they stay with me. I remember, grade seven I'm dating myself but that's you know 40 years ago ish um we had a teacher who read us these these stories in our English class and they stayed with me like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery and there was um one about the dangerous game I can't remember the author now but I still remember those books and they still freak me out and that was 40 years ago so The Lottery is one of my favorite short stories of all time oh yeah superb she is a superb writer for for horror, for like some really good twists and turns in in what she writes. Yeah, absolutely. 100% recommend. (laughs) I'd like to back up on something really quickly. What is it about reading scary stories to children that's beneficial to them? I'm really interested. 
Uh, well, there's t- there's tons of research, but it, it's mostly about empowering kids to face their fears in a situation where they feel safe, which is, I think, you know, what, what we want to do mm. as adults as well. Um, and there's lots of research that talks about, you know, who might like them. So it, um, if you have sort of three criteria, you're more likely to enjoy spooky stories. And I think that applies whether or not you're your kids or whether you're you're an adult you need to believe you're physically safe you need to believe or have sort of like a level of detachment where you can Mm. kind of detach from the horror experience so that's why the fairy tales they're not real like the kids know or or they're be able to be reassured that um you know that witches and goblins and all those things aren't likely to show up in their backyard and the third is their ability to control and manage the the danger that that kids encounter or that we encounter as adults. And so um, if those three things are in place, you're more likely to enjoy spooky stories. But if you don't feel physically safe, or if you don't feel like you have a level of control over your life, you're less likely to enjoy spooky stories. So I thought that was interesting, especially one of the books we're going to talk about is Holly and uh, by Stephen King. It's mm. his most recent um, release. And I know you guys are talking about it for your book club, so I don't want to get into any kind of spoilers, no spoilers. but yeah. there's... Um, uh, it takes place in the time of COVID, and so there's a there's a lot of death that happens in the the book related to COVID, um, and I I it got me wondering about whether or not our our love for horror and um, spooky stories and thrillers uh, was changed by COVID because for a lot of people they felt less safe at the time. So I wondered if there mm. was sort of a a move away from that, or if people who were sort of predestined to like horror for whatever reason they moved towards it because that was an area they could control whereas other parts of their life were were not so much um under their control it'd be interesting to see if anybody's done any studies i didn't investigate that but um uh, yeah so i think that that horror plays a really interesting role in our ability to to understand ourselves and our fears and it's a way to confront things that are happening in the world around us again that plays into the whole situation in holly um where there's um there's two professors who are sort of i don't want to give anything away but they're kind of hiding the secret um and they you know they look as though they are well educated and that right. they're thoughtful and all that sort of thing but they actually engage in um, some racial bigotry and, and that sort of thing in the book and and they're not who they seem. And so it allows us to bump up against those ideas that are, you know, certainly scary, more scary for some of us than others in a way that we have some some control over. So I just, I think that the whole idea of horror is fascinating. I just don't read it very often. Well, I understand that when I think of horror, you know, at its most basic form, I think of all the story times we've had, right? When we're children, we gather around and somebody, I don't know, parent or grandparent, whatever, the leader of the group, sometimes it's just an older kid telling us horror stories. And it's a very communal um, activity. And it's the same thing when you're sitting around and watching horror movies with people. But for some reason, it, there's a distinction between those ways of uh, – dealing with horror and experiencing it versus reading a book on your own in isolation. It feels like a deeper process. And so all the kind of philosophical concepts you're bringing up, Karen, seem really interesting to me because it's almost like if you don't take that stuff in and you're just scared, uh, you know, 
and you're not detached because that's something you mentioned as well. Like you're not able to detach from the material of horror, like why this thing is scaring you. It can actually put you in a pretty terrifying space after. Teresa, like, do you have any um, insight on that or experience? I have to say, like, for all of the, you know, horror or thrillers or supernatural books that I've read, and I have to say, I, I probably consume way more, um, like, televisions and movies in this realm than I do yeah. literature. I have never really felt scared in a way that... <laughs> Full stop. Wow. Uh, Ever. Like, I, I mean, I... Maybe that's a maybe that's too bold of a statement. Where maybe <laughs> now there we're have just going to test you. <laughs> maybe Everyone. there have been moments where I, I have felt afraid, but I definitely feel a separation between what I may be watching or reading and like the reality of life. <laughs> I suppose, mm. uh, and, and like in in many in many cases. But then I also have to say, like there is something about about this genre that helps me understand the human psyche in a way. Like if we're going back to like the lottery, for example, like it is not beneath a community to get rid of one of their own for the benefit of the greater good. Right. And I mean, that's pretty freaky kids, <laughs> you know, that's, um, that really says something about, about like humanity and it's all done in this uh, envelope of, of this genre, right. Uh, of horror, for example. Um, yeah. And I think that maybe like our, our love of horror and um, of fear says something about us as, as a humanity. I'm, Yes. Not 100% sure what exactly, but, you know, our our consumption of it and our, our love of it says something, says something. <laughs> yeah. I find what's scariest is things that are based in truth. So, yep. for example, um, the movie Contagion is really scary, not because there's jump scares all over the place, but because it was based on something that's like really, really realistic, like a worldwide pandemic. Um, I think of The Last of Us, the TV show, which is also based on uh, an infection that's like kind of realistic, and that makes it just that much more scary. It's interesting that you that you say that because one of the reviews that I read for Stephen King's novel um, Holly was mm-hmm. from the New York Times, and the the reviewer said that what makes King's work so frightening is that most other suspense writers um, it elevates the sort of the plot to night terror levels. But but King doesn't really do that so much. He isn't into cruelty in his characters. It's the kindness piece that's the hardest. Like King describes his characters mm. so that you come to um, you know, that you come to love them, that you come to understand them, you know their worries and their plans, and then something happens to them, right? You can sense that there's goodness in these people and then something violent or evil or whatever happens to them. And it's and it's that part that makes it so disturbing that that you can relate to it. And so, um, uh, you know, that's I think that's part of the reason that I, I can't with some of these books. Like they just 
uh, they weigh on me. And and if yep. you can be detached, you can experience that and you can process it and you can you can move on. And I have trouble detaching. And I'll have to say that that's since I've had kids. Like I was able to watch scary movies when I was was younger but then you know since having kids and I it just changes the way I relate to the world and the mm. the fears that I have and so I yeah I had trouble even with um with women talking which is not not um there's no depiction of violence although you understand there's violence that happened before yeah. the story but it just sat with me in for so long in such a different way I can't I can't do some of these really frightening movies and and books because I I I don't come out of it like they, it just makes me sad. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean uh, uh, some of the things you're pointing out right like what really does cause us to be afraid or to get afraid and then you know Teresa your statement about like I don't really think I've ever been scared it reminds me of walking into haunted houses and that kind of experience of what really triggers the fear in people. There's been so many haunted houses where I've walked in and I've left perfectly unscathed. Why? Because I can't see anything and therefore there's nothing for me to get scared about. It's just like a very visual encompassing experience for people, right? And it, the the what I'm trying to get at really is you know, there's a lot of psychological aspect and it can feel very personal for people in what actually gets them to be afraid. And so Stephen King, just going to really any book, but um, for me, It by Stephen King was a very slow burn. It was a very long book, number one. There's a lot of just, you know, getting to know characters. It was slow burn. And yeah, there's this, you know, there's the clown, Pennywise. There's just stuff going on, the, the creepiness of the town overall. But there's also like things that he brings up that characters feel you know um discomfort insecurities and the more you can relate to those it, it almost is the deeper you feel the fears that they're fearing you know and, and experiencing that kind of stuff I think is like excellent um horror writing because it's not just uh, you know here's what's placed in front of you are you scared yet <laughs> right there's a much more to it than that Right. It's like fear by proxy. It's not that you, the reader, is necessarily scared of what's being presented to you. It's just because you understand that the characters in the story have reasons to be scared of what's yes. being presented to them. It's by it's proxy. Real. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's interesting that one of the studies that I read said the higher you rate on the empathy scale, the less likely you are to enjoy horror because you feel that more deeply. Um. You relate to the characters more deeply. Whereas if you are not as connected to the characters you know, I think that's how some folks enjoy it more because they don't, some authors don't have the same skill as Stephen King, but also they just don't connect in the same way to a, a fictional character. And so yeah. they're they're able to compartmentalize that. That's why stuff like zombies, right, where it's just like, oh, this is, you know, an element of fear, like throw in a zombie movie or a, a book about zombies. But to me, like, that's not scary. It's just so yeah. far from reality that I can't get obsessed over something like that being scary exactly i think that's exactly for me i i think that's the same like i maybe i should retract my statement that i never feel fear in movies but i maybe i feel fear in movies or in, in books um in cases where there things seem like really unhinged like i'm thinking of this this one part 
in this movie. Um, and it is uh, based on, this movie is based on a, on a really lovely book. And of course, the name is Escaping Me. Mm. But anyway, um, it's on um, a major battle happening in World War II. And everyone is on the beach. All of the soldiers are on the beach, right? And the main character looks around and everyone has basically lost their mind. In this, in this momentous time where they have barely survived, mm. um, there's like circus music happening and it's all chaotic. <laughs> and the character moves just along the beach and it's a beautiful, it's just the scene that is, um, was filmed um, just one, like one time. Um, and it captures just how people have have just completely lost it. And to me, that is horrifying. And that's not even a mm. that's not even a horror movie. It's a it's a right. it's a book. It's a drama, right? It it's it's um a serious, more serious literary fiction. Um but that scene of just that loss of of like humanity and of and and everyone has just kind of gone gone senseless. Mm-hmm. Um, really, that really horrifies me. When you think of horror, you think of axe wielding murderers and people right. torturing each other and serial killers. But it's a lot more than that. It can be establishing situations that make you deeply uncomfortable for mm-hmm. very reasonable reasons. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is a perfect example of that where you you really feel this anxiety and this unhinged um unhingedness, I suppose, um in something that isn't even classified as horror, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it could be because it's scary. Are there it's- any other books that you want to mention um Teresa that really like whether or not you find it scary, something that's meant to be horror for spooky s- stories, Convo. Um, I think that uh, well, one of the books that we wanted to talk about today, um, I wanted to talk about today, I'm, I'm not too sure if it falls quite into this category as, as maybe more um, like your typical kind of spooky story. Uh it's a rather new book. It's called All the Dead Shall Weep. And it's part of um, a series called Gutty Rose by Charlene Harris. And I've talked about Charlene Harris before. She's a, an author that I go back to and I read again and again and again. One of her um, series is about a librarian um, that tends to be more murder mystery. But a lot of her books also have supernatural kind of elements to it, such as the Sookie Stackhouse series, which um, was the basis for True Blood, the TV series, which was um, quite a hit. Um, and she always writes strong female characters, but there's always like this kind of supernatural um, piece to it. And the Gunny Rose series is kind of a mishmash of fantasy, um, history, and alternate alternative history as well. 
So in this uh, version of the world that Charlene Harris writes, um, the United States has fractured after the assassination of JFK. And I, I really like, hmm. I really am interested in books or in movies, TV series. I'm thinking of like for all mankind um, where there's like an alternate history that kind of happens, which in itself is just really um, uh just really interesting to think about how one event could really dictate uh, the to- the future of, of humanity. And so these books follow a gunslinger, Elizabeth Rose, and she makes a living as a hired gun. And she's based in uh, Texoma, which is an amalgamation of Texas and Oklahoma. And in All the Dead Shall Weep, uh, which is the fifth book in the series, you know, there's murder, um, there's wizards, there's kidnapping, assassination attempts. So it's got, it's got a little sprinkle of kind of everything. And I think that this would be, this series would be, you know, really good for, for this time of year. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot going on in this book. It is not necessarily, um, you know, fear based, but the conversations themselves are complex. It seems, Karen, you talked about Holly. Um, just, you know, weaved it into this conversation. Was there another book that you thought of talking about spooky stories? Yeah, there's one that's called The Land of Lost Things, and it's written by John Connolly. And it's a follow-up to a book that he wrote, oh, I think about a decade ago, called The Book of Lost Things. Uh, and there's a par- some parallel structures between these two books, but you could read The Land of Lost Things on its own if you wanted to. Uh, so the story is about Phoebe, who's an eight-year-old girl, and she is in a car accident, and she um, is in the hospital. She's comatose, and her mother is sitting at her bedside, and she's reading aloud to Phoebe all of the fairy stories that she hopes and this kind of goes back to our conversation earlier Jacob about the stories that we we tell our kids and what value there are for for scary fairy tales and that sort of thing so she's reading all these books to to Phoebe to try and bring her back basically to the to the land of the living so to speak uh, and then the hospital says that Phoebe has to move into like a, a longer term care uh, which is near the property connected to a book written by a vanished author and series the mother of Phoebe is sort of feeling this real pull towards this property this on the hospital grounds oh, something wants her to enter yeah <laughs> wants course, her to enter this uh, this this property and sort of go on this journey and it, the the journey is colored by her own childhood and the folklore that she's been reading to her daughter and that was read to her when she was a young girl mm. and it's you know it's about witches and giants and all of those sorts of old enemies who are watching and waiting for her. So it's um, it's one of those books that I think it's lyrically written, it's beautifully written, and it weaves all of these stories that we knew as children into it, which I think is a really interesting way to sort of approach this topic, but it's also it's pretty scary. Um, you know, Sirius has no idea whether or not Phoebe will ever wake up, and, and if she doesn't wear where will she go? What are the lands that she'll inhabit? Uh, so it's a very magical type of book, um, as opposed to being sort of a, a gory horror. It's more sort of a, a literary, uh, maybe like a softer horror, if that's a sort of thing. But, but hmm. definitely something that would be captivating. And I think it. I, what the reason I picked it um, is because it does weave in the stories that we have as, as children and the the real life horrors that come to play in our own lives and how we might rely on those stories to help guide us. 
And what was the name of that title again? It's called uh, the Lost, uh, the Land of Lost Things by John Connolly, and it's the sequel to the Book of Lost Things. So there's references to characters from the Book of Lost Things, which has, as I said, sort of a parallel structure, uh, mm. but you can read it on your own on its own. Can I go back to um, my your earlier question, uh, Ramia, and also to my earlier comment about? Um, that movie scene, uh, yes. just so, so people know. So the book is called Atonement. It's by um, Ian McEwen. And the the big battle scene is uh, Dunkirk, obviously. And um, another book, just to your question about maybe books that aren't necessarily um, – build as horror, but are kind of horrifying. It, uh, the one that just came to my mind actually is uh, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishigaro. And um, it's not, I don't know if it's intentionally set in supposed to be the future or not, but it doesn't seem like the future, but it's about a group of children. It's set in England about a group of children who are, um, basically clones of of actual human beings or supposed to be clones of actual human beings um, who are being um, created and raised for their organs and and basically (laughs) their entire life but the thing is is you know if you read the book or you watch the movie it's not horror it's actually quite touching and it focuses on the relationship of two of these kids that have grown up and that have fallen in love but really oh. the reality of their life is that they go through a series of um uh of uh, surgeries throughout their basically young life when they're needed where their their organs are harvested when a person needs them it sounds like a really cute story that's wrapped up in a horrifying setting. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, Karen, I'm on your side. Like, I think horror is definitely something I engage in as a genre, but I it sits with me for very long. And sometimes I feel like it's it's taken too much of me. It's interesting you say that. So I think that it goes back to sort of just the whole idea of of sharing stories and having empathy for characters. And some of those those sort of tingly feelings that you get are, um, if you're relating to the character, it's not just happening to them, it's happening to you. Or you can envision how this could be happening in the world, right? Like Margaret Atwood, for example, when she wrote some of her books, she's like, I never wrote anything that was new. These sorts of things are happening around the world. That was, I think, specific to um, The Handmaid's Tale, which right. is horrifying in and of itself, yes, right? Yes. But those are mm-hmm. those are things that are actually happening in the, in the world. And so horror allows us to sort of confront that and see that whether or not you're able to let that go and move through the world I mean, I think we've had this kind of conversation before. It comes to a point of privilege a little bit. And some of the research I read said said that. Like if you're in an economically unstable situation or a physically unsafe situation, you're less likely to engage in horror or enjoy it because you you can't detach. You can relate yeah. to what's happening to those characters in a way that somebody who's not in those sort of situations does not. And so yeah. and um, I just, co- you I know, coming right at your power. insecurities. 
right? Like it's yeah. going right at what you're going through. I, and I think that's it's, why it, I, I find those pieces like that aren't traditionally horrifying, supposed to be horrifying, horrifying for myself. Like this idea of kind of losing your, your mental state, you know, seems and for humanity to become unhinged to me seems totally horrific. This mm -hmm. idea of like cloning bodies to me doesn't necessarily seem like science fiction, even though I think that mm -hmm. book was written, you know, some decades ago, really. Yeah. Like it doesn't seem all that far fetched. So, right, because to me, we that's do have the ability quite... to clone now. That is actually yeah, possible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, like, yeah. what what is what are we what is the line that we haven't crossed to do what they're doing and never let me go? You know, like we haven't mm -hmm. quite gotten there yet, but like it is a total possibility, and to me, that is horrifying. Yes, it's more horrifying yeah. than zombies that seem kind of crazy or or <laughs> you know uh, angry mushrooms. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's interesting because I'm I'm drawing so many parallels now. We're going to wrap with you, but just to say that we're drawing so many parallels now between this convo and what we've been having around taboo subject matters and just like discomfort in books throughout September. So uh, kind of, you know, a, a lot of overlapping themes and feelings and concepts here. But Karen, Teresa, it's always super cool talking to you guys uh, about literature and about just like yeah, some of the enlightening things that come up when we chat. Thank you very much. Thank you. Happy Halloween. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Uh, we've even had some retractions of statements during this conversation about, well, I don't get scared. <laughs> just kidding. I think I do. I'm never but... scared of anything. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think it's because we're scared that people are going to test our fears after that. But uh, we're going to take a break. We're coming back to talk Know Your Narrator with Sarah Hillis. She's featuring Julia Whalen, who we'll find out all about. We'll be right back. This is AMI Audiobook Review. Welcome back. It's AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. And as we promised, it's the monthly Know Your Narrator segment now. We're looping in Sarah Hillis, and once a month she features a notable narrator in the world of audiobooks. And we shout out the voices behind our favorite listens, getting to know their fascinating lives and backgrounds behind our favorite listens. And Sarah, today we're moving to Julia Whalen. We're excited about Julia because um, personally, for me, I've read now a couple books that she's narrated that I absolutely have uh, fast-tracked to some of my favorite reads of the last couple years. And... I've read a book that she wrote for the first time just a couple months ago, my Oxford year. So hmm. I'm excited that you chose her to feature. Yeah, I, I think she's great. Um, I thought it was cool that you guys did The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue uh, a couple weeks ago or whenever that was <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because uh, Julia narrates that. And uh, she's done a lot of that kind of magical realism fantasy kind of stuff in her narration um she's also done lots of you know kind of romance and uh young adult stuff and of course she's narrated two of her own books now she's written two books uh, and i read the other one i read thank you for listening uh yeah which is great it's so funny it's just ridiculously weird and awesome <laughs> 
That yeah. one's highly recommended also, her debut novel, right? No, no, you read her it's... debut novel. My oh, right, 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 right. Yes, okay, novel. flipped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. This one came out last year in 2022. Yeah. yeah, we talked about The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue a couple episodes ago, but we didn't really touch too much on her narration, which is awesome, by the way. Like, I think we held off on talking about it because because yes. we wanted to talk about it here. I think in that case, it was it was one of these cases where she did something so like when you do something right, people won't be sure you've done anything at all. And it's like when you have nothing to say about the narrations because you did something really, really good. Yeah. Uh, she has a she doesn't necessarily perform like sometimes when I um, compare her performances to others she doesn't necessarily go there Uh, just her default tone her default you know narrator voice Um, she comes from such a I don't know like a gentle neutral place for me which I really really love and I loved it in the different kinds of books that she's read as well you said Sarah that she does a lot of this kind of like fantasy-esque things um but even in my Oxford year which was you know just real storytelling uh, I just loved what she brought to it yeah I think I think in one way she's really uh as you said subtle or or gentle or Mm. careful with how she narrates things but in in another way I think she actually is quite involved in the invested in the story too like like so it's both you've got the best of both worlds it's not someone trying too hard to do it and yet they're doing it really well. So what's her background? Like, how does she get into all this? Uh, she's born in 84 in Oregon. Uh, her mother was a teacher and her father was a firefighter. And she started kind of acting a little bit in community theater when she was like five. I don't know what she would have played, but you never know. You know, there's lots of little kid roles, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And by the time she was 10 or 11, she had really developed an interest in acting. And so... She uh, she had taken lessons with a, an actor and a screenwriter, and he actually gave her the chance that he and his wife would become her guardians while she w- they moved to L.A. to try to further her career in, in L.A. because you have to kind of do that mm-hmm. if you want to get into, like, TV and things like that. So I guess, really, that wouldn't have been too far away from Oregon, so I guess her parents could have still seen her and all that kind of stuff. But it would be a crazy thing to decide to do you know like to just leave your home and go with these people and yeah ship your kid off (laughs) to parent and uh yeah so she um she 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 of course is best known in her acting circles for playing grace manning on a show called once and again which was kind of a family drama from 99 to 2002 2002 uh on i guess was it lifetime or somewhere i don't know who originally aired it but it was on a bunch of different channels here in canada Uh, i didn't watch it i'm sad to say Mm. i sort of missed it i was busy being a university person but (laughs) 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 i guess i just missed it i was watching the simpsons all the time or something Um, (laughs) but uh yeah so um everybody sort of knew her from that point so she's a teenager at this point playing a teenager and then she really wanted to go to university of course and she was a very good student even with all her acting which is kind of amazing to me. But anyway, um, 
And so she said, I can't act while I'm at school. So I want to be at school. I don't want to, you know, do it problematically. And she didn't want to take acting at school. She wanted to take uh, literature like me. Yay. Mm. So So many parallels. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. Well, I I never played the teenager on once again, but uh, Uh, (laughs) that's the only parallel, actually, I think. (laughs) Uh, So she took English literature. She did do a year at Oxford, um, though I think the book is not really her story. It's a it's a fictionalized thing. But but based on her experiences, like like the the impressions of Oxford that she had and that kind of stuff, you know, Um. And while she was at college, she met a girl who was the daughter of, I think her name was Laura Grafton at Brilliance Audio, who was like some kind of bigwig there, like a director or something. And I guess Laura must have heard Julia's voice enough times. And she thought, I think you'd be a really good narrator. Um, Mm. So why don't you come and try it out? And she kind of hemmed and hawed and finally decided, okay, I need some, I need to, you know, make, have a job and make some money. And why don't I try doing this? And the minute she started, uh, she, she just realized she could do it. it. There wasn't sort of a learning curve on the narration aspect. She just read a book the way she'd always read books from when she was a kid. We had George Goodell the other month and he, he never read books when he was a kid. Julia read books all the time when she was a kid. And so she loved literature. She loved story. Um, and, and yeah, so she, so she took to it right away. And uh, she said it was like like a fish to water or a duck to water or whatever. Mm. Just, mm-hmm. She doesn't know why she was good. She just could do it. And she's got a fantastic voice. It's subtle, it's slightly breathy, but very smooth and incredibly clear but instead of just talking about her voice uh sarah you have a clip for us yeah we do it's from um happy place by emily henry published by penguin audio a cottage on the rocky shoreline with knotty pine floorboards and windows that are nearly always open the smell of evergreens and brine wafting in on the breeze and white linen drapes lifting in a lazy dance the burble of a coffee maker and that first deep pull of cold ocean air as we step out onto the flagstone patio, steaming mugs in hand. My friends, willow, honey-haired Sabrina, and wisp of a waif Cleo, with her tiny silver septum piercing and dip-dyed box braids. My two favorite people on the planet since our freshman year at Mattingly College. So Julia has... um. I think one of my favorite female voices, just her register uh, for narration, um, her register and her ability to kind of you you said it already, Sarah, like be present and involved in the performance. But by default, when she's telling a story, she just kind of seems like she's there. It's not really much she's doing with it. Uh, is there something particularly you enjoy about her tone? I just enjoy I enjoy her diction, her like she enunciates I can't even speak she enunciates her words um (laughs) very well but it doesn't sound clipped or crisp like it it doesn't sound hurried or uh brusque or whatever it it but you can hear what what she's saying and you can hear uh how she's saying it uh her pacing is great um and yeah her tone is uh it's 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 as you said very sort of neutral doesn't do a lot of shifting around the register 
she she finds her comfortable register and just uses mm-hmm. it. I, I mean, when she's making characters, that's a different story, obviously. But but when she's a narr- narrator, yeah, she just um, she she does it well, and she, she I think she really even goes really detailed into how a sentence should be said. Like she really listens to the rhythms of of the writing. I think. Yeah. She has a really good, uh, she really has her finger on the pulse of what, like when there's tension in the story. And she really reproduces that tension super well with her pacing and her diction. And I think she's got a huge amount of variety in the way she says sentences. More than anything, it's her variety in how she reads sentences that's like so engaging. Yeah, it's, it's it's not the same way twice. I mean, if you, if you have, a more active sequence it sounds more active if you have a more reflective sequence it sounds more reflective and a lot of narrators do this to be fair i mean every i think that's what you should learn to do yeah. if you're a narrator but good performer yeah but she uh she, as i say she lets the writing tell her what to do which i think is great and some some narrators have said you know i know how i should read this thing most of them are indifference to the writing to be fair but i think some are a little more you know, I've worked on this book for a really long time, so I know what I should do, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, but but she's really about the story itself that's there on the page. She wants it to be narrated, you know, to the author's credit. And interestingly, when she tries to narrate her own stuff, she says it's really hard to do, which is funny for her because huh. she reads out loud to edit her stuff anyway. That's what she does. Mm. Uh, uh, so she's like, why, why, when I get into the studio, is it so hard? And I, and I kind of think probably it's because this is my own speculation that once you get there, you're like, I could have changed that. I could have changed that. Now I can't change it because it's the publishers are publishing it. And like, yeah. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. It's everything that you wish you did if you had more time or, you know, continue to edit or something like that. Yeah, like I, that's just again that's my own speculation. I'm not yeah. sure, but cuz she in her interview I heard like she doesn't even really know why it was so hard. She just like it was so hard. I couldn't sort of just let it be. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because sometimes something looks good on the page, but it sounds funny spoken out loud. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's it rhymes for some reason where you didn't want it to or just the the number of syllables just doesn't sound right. And when you say it out loud, when you edit your text by reading it out loud, I, I could see how that's actually a really effective way of of eliminating that awkwardness, especially for the narrators. But in this case, she's the one that has to deal with it. Exactly. And it's not even something that everyone has to deal with, right? Like authors maybe are not necessarily thinking about reading aloud anyway. Um, but if you're author rating you know, you're, you have to think. What? You, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you're reading or you're writing, but you're also narrating, right? The author readers. Oh, <laughs> oh come wow. on, guys. I'm putting you on, okay? <laughs> if Shakespeare can invent words, so can you. I feel, exactly. <laughs> I feel like it was Ryan Huey on Kelly and Romeo who's, you know, uh, often uses author reader. It probably uh. was. Okay, sorry. Ryan gets the credit. Sorry. Ryan, shout out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, anyways, if you're doing that, then you automatically kind of think about it that way or, you know, reading aloud is part of that process. 
for you because, right, more, more often than not, you're writing a book and then you're handing it off to a narrator or that idea of uh, reading aloud comes much later. But by default, you're writing the novel. Others are reading the novel to themselves, citedly. <laughs> and uh, the read aloud part just isn't, you know, it doesn't default. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, a lot of authors will say, um, by the time I'm, if, if they are authorating, by the time uh, they're narrating their book, they've they've either done a couple more books or they're on the next book. Like that book is yeah. in the, it, it's in the can now. So they don't have the same relationship with it. But maybe when Julia did hers, it was pretty immediate. I'm not, I'm not, of course, it's your debut novel. Mm -hmm. You've got all those kind of. You're like, already narrating. Nerves. You know what that's like. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Hmm. Interesting. Um, so does she talk anything about preparing, like the process of preparing to narrate? Yeah, she's she's a really meticulous pre preparer. There we go. That's a word. Yeah. Preparator. Preparator. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's a preparator. Um, and uh, no, she she uh, she'll read the entire book. Um, she basically doesn't read for pleasure. Like a lot of these people say they just have no time to read for pleasure or very little time and it's hard for her to get into the pleasure mindset because she's like oh well this would be hard to narrate or this would be interesting to narrate or that like she can't stop being a narrator so yeah so she preps she preps every time she reads even if she doesn't isn't supposed to be prepping so she uh she looks at the way the characters relate to each other um like especially the main characters obviously because uh, you need to have enough distinction between the characters to know who's talking when, when attributions aren't being made and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so she looks at the emotional arcs of the characters. She looks at the arc of the story. Obviously you want to do that. Uh, and she creates a, a difficult word list, which she might shoot off to an author or a publisher and say like, how do I say these words? Especially if it's fantasy because <laughs> mm. the author has an idea how yeah. to say it, but you know, um, or uh, or she'll and she'll create um like the lists of characters like who who's you know most tied to which which other character kind of thing so you can kind of get all that going and you know she'll do her well who needs an accent what kind of accent do they need that kind of stuff obviously um, now as I understand it that really it's really like goes from author to author, depending on whether they want to be involved or not in the audiobook process. Like I know that sometimes the narrator will reach out to the author uh, asking for, should this character have an accent? Um, should this character talk like this? And uh, other times they will make an effort to not be involved whatsoever. And the authors yeah. will just tell the narrator like, nope, you, you do your thing. I don't want to have anything to do with the mm -hmm. audiobook. Hand and that off. doesn't mean that they don't care about the audiobook. No. They know how many sales they get through audiobook formats. They're not stupid. It's just they trust the narrator to, mm -hmm. to do a good job. Yeah, it's interesting because um, back in the day, uh, the producers used to be very much. I think this was true of like movies and TV, too. The producers were very much often like well the authors might have too many opinions you know we we know what we want to do we don't want the author to stick his nose in there and mess up our movie or our book or whatever right because mm -hmm. because they want to get the thing done they don't have that much time and nowadays it's kind of shifted that either narrators on their own hook will you know talk to an author on instagram or something like this or uh or the producers will leave, the publishers will even say like why don't you talk to this author so that you know you can 
at least get you know get the pronunciations right and 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 things like that because uh, because authors do sometimes have a sense of what they what they would hear and at least the narrator would have that input whether they use it or don't use it I guess that's their own choice but um yeah so and it and some authors yeah they're just like I don't know I wrote the thing what what do I care I mean I care about the that the audiobook is good but I know that these people know how to do it so I will just let it be and work on my next project you know now, I know that this is Know Your Narrator, but seeing as she's also an author, uh, what can you tell tell us about uh, her books? Well, she wrote two books, My Oxford Year, which Ramya read, and Thank You for Listening, which I read. And they're both basically, I think, comedy-like books. Like, there's serious parts in them, but but they're they're all about you know misunderstandings between people and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Thank you for listening. Is an unapologetic rom com um, about audiobook narration, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and it's about huh. this woman, this woman who who started out in indie romance, uh, getting her narration feet wet, and she would she never wants to do romance again. But then this this amazing romance writer that she used to work with in the past under an alias because she didn't want everyone to know her name <laughs> as a romance a narrator asked her to do one last romance and she's like oh my gosh what am I gonna do and there's all this all this other stuff going on in her life and so it's 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 so fun and ridiculous and and witty dialogue and and just oh, so it's, witty. it's so great <laughs> yeah both books my Oxford year as well I mean. I don't know. I don't know if I'd categorize my Oxford years comedy. Definitely comedic. Definitely like just the author's style of writing was very comedic. There were so many great moments of uh, laughter Um, and the wit comes through great, especially for the kind of content in this book, because, you know, it's like a, a year away in Oxford and she's like, I don't know if I really belong here because, you know, everyone else is here properly and I'm here on the scholarship kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really fun, but also just a lot of like deep moments because of the dynamic between the two characters who meet and uh, fall in yeah. love. Yeah. Yeah. There's deep moments in the other one too. Mm-hmm. Um, really deep moments actually. And, and yet it's, it is so like I laughed and laughed. I don't often Same. laugh at books. I just kept laughing and laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she does a fantastic job at, like we've been saying it throughout, uh, the writing and then encompassing that writing through her performance, she really nails it. Like you would, like she's perfect for the kind of stuff that she reads. I read two books from her only realizing that it was her reading it like until we were, until Sarah, you brought this topic forward. And I was like, wait, I've read her before. Yeah, I've read Invisible Life of Ali Rue. And I read Educated by Tara Westover, and her performances are amazing in both of those books. Yeah, she won Best Female Narrator, and I forgot to tell you that. She won uh, Best Female Narrator in the Audis in 2019 for Mm. Educated. I need to read that book. It sounds amazingly, wow, intense. Yeah, it's an intense uh, nonfiction about a very unorthodox upbringing, like a homeschooled upbringing in a very... um, fundamentalist Mormon community in the United States. Just based on that, I'm like, yes, she would have done excellent at this. <laughs> at, this <laughs> at this book. Well, awesome, Sarah. Um, you'll be back next month for more Know Your Narrator. Appreciate it. Yep. yep. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Sarah. 
Sarah Hillis joining us for Know Your Narrator, and that's a monthly feature we got locked in here on AMI Audiobook Review. Next month, well, not next month, next week. Whoa, we're not taking a hiatus. Uh, Next episode, we're going to be talking to Greg David, AMI Communications Specialist, and he's come on at least once a season, Jay, because he's, you know, reading all the time. And it's actually his recommendation, Holly by Stephen King, which we kept mentioning throughout the, the episode this week. And so we're looking forward to finding more about his reading habits. I think we're going to pull out that game again. Rapid fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to take him through the paces with the rapid fire reviews. We had a ton of fun with that one last time. <laughs> yep, it was good. And we're tweaking the rules as we go. So it's, <laughs> you know, it's our oyster. Uh, I'm Ramya Amadan with Jacob Shymansky. That's it for this week. Technical producer Nisreen Abdelmajid will be back next week with us. Yay, we miss her. And until then, happy audiobook listening. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.